Hey everybody, you're very welcome to this month's episode of the Asking for a Parent podcast. It's me, Dr. Coleman Ochter, and it's really great to be here on the one year anniversary of the podcast. We began the Asking for a Parent podcast in November 2020, and so here we are, November 21, and it's brilliant uh, to be still here talking to you, and I hope you've enjoyed our company over the last 12 months. And unfortunately, we feel a little bit anxious, a similar reminiscent anxiety to where we were this time last year. Numbers are getting high. There's anxiety around the school environments and the safety of all that. So I think it's not an easy time for people and I hope you're doing okay. We've got a very special episode this week. I did a piece on national radio a number of weeks ago on the competitive nature of children's sport, and we got a phenomenal response to that. And as a result, lots of questions came in from people around children's sport, and they've been coming in for the last month or two. So we decided to dedicate a full episode to that theme, and we have asked back... Shane Smith, who's a sports scientist, primary school teacher and an expert in children's coaching uh, and sports to join me on this week's episode or this month's episode even. So without further ado, I'll let you listen to myself and Shane's fascinating conversation about children's sport. Hi, everybody. You're very welcome to this month's episode of the Asking for a Parent podcast. My guest today is someone you might remember from season one. And he has kindly agreed to join me again because there's been a strong theme to the questions coming in over the last two months, which I think he'll be greatly able to help us answer. We have a massive response to the last time this guest was on, and I've no doubt we'll have the same again. This man's credentials will be familiar to most listeners. But to recap, he's a sports scientist, father, primary school teacher, and an authority on children's sport. His insights and importance is the coaching values and what works and does not work. And his ability to put child at the center of the teachings is second to none. I love chatting with this man both on and off air and always come away with some insights into the way in which we can move children's sport forward in a way that's evidenced to be effective and make this an area of childhood we can be proud of. So without further delay, let's get to questions with today's guest on the Asking for a Parent podcast. It's Shane Smith. Shane, how are you? Coleman, I'm very well. Thank you. How are you? Good, thanks. Last time we spoke on the podcast was December 2020. Big changes in where we are now, nearly almost a year on. And I think we were in the height of lockdown at that time. Maybe we had just maybe started to reopen and then we had another closure again, then post-Christmas. And But there, there seems to be a little bit of momentum in terms of how things are opening now with the vaccine rollouts and things like that. So we seem to be returning somewhat to normal. But how has it been for you? How are you, how are you doing? Well, the the return to normality has been has been brilliant. You know, the schools back open again and uh, sports back on again and back to our coaching and back to what we love to do. And so with the lockdown, I think Coleman, you said that like it kind of allowed us to press the pause button on uh, so many aspects of life that were like um, so intense, running and racing around. Funny you should you mentioned it because I was over in the the library the other day and uh, picked up a little book in there that you might be familiar with called Cop On. <laughs> written by your good self and I was I was flicking through it and a couple of the couple of aspects really jumped out on me the um the M50 parenting uh, really jumped out on me those, those parents who, who leave me at seven and they're getting home at seven and um it, it's funny we kind of paused that during lockdown and whilst it was quite challenging to work to work from home in many cases getting back that two hours for many people must have been just phenomenal and to reconnect with the I think the important things in life um, spending time with children spending time with friends 
walking in the mountains, cycling. They're really important things that that we remember as children. And we can buy our children all the things we want in the world, but what they will remember the most is the time we spent with them. Yeah, and again, uh, it's it's really weird because I, I think I'm kind of back to that M50 parent at the moment. You know, um, we're back on campus and UCD, and so you're in there four and five days a week teaching. And you know, as as much as as it's lovely to be back, there is a uh, there is a a return to the rat race almost. Uh, that's kind of very hard to it's very hard to stay balanced in the philosophies of lockdown that we may have learned. And and again, we see ourselves maybe rushing back to the way in which things were before, which, you know, I, I'd hoped we would have had learnings from, but it's no harm to remind ourselves of that from time to time. And, you know, I, I, there's no doubt that the, the walks and, and the, the things that you're describing there certainly, I think, have happened less since we went back to, to being fully open, um, for sure. Now, the working from home wasn't ideal for me. I, I found it quite lonely, if I'm honest. And, and so it's lovely to be back meeting people in the flesh again and everything else. But yeah, you know, the, spending two hours in the glare of, of red brake lights, you know, uh, as you try and negotiate uh, the Dublin city traffic is, is certainly something that uh, has been hard to readjust to, for sure, for sure. Yeah, and, from a, and, and from a coaching and sporting perspective, it's funny, we maybe post lockdown, we ref- or after lockdown, we reflected and said, gosh, maybe I shouldn't be rushing and racing to bring their children to all these extracurricular kids. Maybe, you know, basketball Monday, GA Tuesday, drama Wednesday maybe it's just too much and I know I've definitely reflected as a parent on that too and and as a coach it shows that a coach I'm conscious of that so I'm trying to just incorporate then more multi-sports into my my existing coaching at the moment because I'm conscious that maybe people are not doing all those things again because maybe many people said you know what I think I'm happy one or two sports with my children and we get that little bit of time back in the evening time together as a family so I'm quite conscious of that doing from talking to the children maybe it's an opportunity for us as coaches to grow and evolve and incorporate other sports within our warm-ups and within our training sessions. Absolutely. And again, I think that is probably something that we did. Well, hopefully, I certainly learned it myself in terms of the, you know, as I say, soccer Monday, GA Tuesday, rugby Wednesday, you know, <laughs> and again, you'd have to question the the benefit in that from a, a child and parent relationship, but also from the point of view of the child. You know, we would always say that we liked our children to to do lots of sports, but I don't know whether they all have to do them at the same time. Do you know what I mean? And, and, and I think seasons maybe exist for a reason. But I imagine, Shane, this is a busy time for you. I know um, I'm kind of doing a lot of kind of talks and things at the moment, and I'm sure you're out the door busy with because uh, you'd give talks in clubs and things like that. And uh, for anyone who hasn't been part of one of Shane's talks, it's really I, I think it should be mandatory in most sports clubs. But how, how's that going? Are you busy doing that? Are you still on the webinars or are you getting back to face to face on that one? Yeah, well, face to face, Tom, when you said it like it isn't coaching about um, communication, speaking, listening, responding and Whilst I did many, many Zoom webinars over the last couple of years, nothing quite beat hopping in the car, going to a club, and meeting people, engaging in conversation. And that, I suppose that that contact, that personal aspect of it, and whilst Zoom really um, served its purpose over lockdown, and I got many of us through so many challenging times, I suppose, to be able to share information. I, I really enjoy this time of year again, November, December, January, where you're back in the car and I'm very fortunate to be invited to clubs, a variety of sports to speak about coaching and about retention because, uh, you know, I know my, my main sports for coaching would be GAA, hurling football and camogie. 
but that's the but the theory around how to coach is, is becoming more and more prevalent so I mean we all have access to the what to coach you know you want to coach basketball you type in basketball drills you want to coach GA you type in GA drills to Google you want to coach hurling rugby hockey you'll get all the what to coach online and there's so much fantastic information out there on what to coach what we're learning more and more now from a children's perspective is the the how to coach and the way they play and that's really where we're at now as coaches and when i go and deliver talks to clubs it's mostly on that and why children are playing and what keeps them playing how we can retain as many as possible for as long as possible and how to meet those needs in the training session and it's amazing shane and it must be three years ago since we met for the first time uh we started chatting i think it's a it's an amazing the appetite for this stuff that's out there and again the volume of questions coming into the podcast are, are kind of a sign of that. But I wrote a small piece there a few weeks ago on children's sport. And it's just the level of engagement that you get from coaches, from parents, teachers around, you know, the, how do we get this right? How do we do it right? And and the, the debates and discussions around the best way to approach things. And uh, I, I'm always really surprised at the at the appetite for it. I mean, it really is a topical, topical uh, uh, topic, if I can say that and use that word too many times in one sentence. But if we can, can we push on to some of the questions coming in? Because I think we've got a lot of questions to get through today and it might just uh, be no harm to burst on with them, if that's all right with you. Fantastic comment, fantastic. Okay, well, I'll start with one. Uh, this first one here is... My son plays JA and is always at training and works hard at his skills in his own time. However, he's dyspraxic uh, and struggles with coordination. Every week he's a sub and gets 10 minutes at the end of the game when the game is won or lost. I know he's disappointed and finds it hard, but I don't know what to do to help him. Now, Shane, this question is a question that I've heard many, many times around the child who who has a real interest in it, uh, probably a real keenness for the sport, spends a lot of time in their own time trying to perfect their skills, but for whatever reason, just hasn't got that maybe natural skill set. And, you know, a child struggling with dyspraxia will really struggle with coordination, hand-eye, stuff like that. And and this kid is, is coming on for 10 minutes. I'm not so sure she doesn't mention the age range of the child, but how do you help a child who's in that situation or what can you do as a parent? Yeah, well, well, like first of all, you know, like no child should be a sub every week. You know, no child should be that sub every week. And uh, uh, children are, are entitled to equal game time. I mean, the right to play, for example. I know the the Welsh government brought in that right about 2010 or 11. The right of the child to play It's fantastic, and like every child deserves equal game time. And children should not be leaving sport because they're always a sub. They're never the one brought on. It's a token gesture. They're pulling out the arm of, of, of their friends in the sideline and they're messing and joking. It's like they shouldn't be doing that. Children should be getting equal game time. And how do we implement that? I mean, I've said this lots of times, Common. I really believe our clubs should have a philosophy of like, why are we here? What are we about? What do we represent? What do we want? And, and what's success? And what I believe success is to keep as many as possible for as long as possible. That's what I believe success is and retention being a part of that. Like when we look at coaches too and with the best of intention, coaches come in, take the under 19, given a set of jerseys and footballs and said, off you go in many cases. Now, where is there continuous improvement? Where is there 
continuous education and a continuous growth for those coaches. That's not always the coach's fault either. So our committees and our clubs, we have a massive responsibility to continue to upskill our coaches as to best practice. And if a club are true to that philosophy about, yes, we respect each child, each child gets equal game time. And, you know, this is the funny one going, people find this hard to believe, but I, I really think that winning or losing is irrelevant at the younger ages. I really believe that. There's an irrelevance to winning or losing, and there should be, because children are not motivated by winning. I've, I've yet to see a research paper to say that children are motivated by winning. Children are motivated to play sport, to meet their friends, play, to have fun, and to develop a task. So, like, there's some research around that. Like, children play sport for fun and friendship. Children leave sport when it's, like, autocratic and controlling. Children are demotivated when, for example, like, mistakes are punished. And if a child, as you said, a child about drops the ball or gives the ball away, that demotivates children. And what will happen is they will, they will just leave sport. So, like, failing to meet the child's needs is ineffective. And that will result in a drop-off. And, like, as coaches, we need to move away from, like, dare I say, a traditional method of coaching to a more holistic, child-centered approach. So are we player-centered? Are we child-centered? Or are we self-centered? Mm. That's the question for coaches. So is it our career path as coaches? Is it we are maybe trying to relive a career that we had ourselves to the eyes of the children that we coach? Trying to relive a career that maybe we didn't have to the eyes that we coach? What are we about as the coach? But if it's a child-centered approach, it's equal game time, equal opportunity, and inclusion. And in terms of, I know, and I can only say, from a soccer point of view, I know like up until under 11s, I think there's equal game time is kind of a guideline. And then after that, it's not. My guess is if this dad, he probably is probably under 12s or 13s. What should coaches do where it's not a guideline from, let's say, the FAI or the GAA around, you know, you have to do it? Because I suppose the counter argument to that is, and it's a question that probably coming up later on, well, you know, what are you there for? You know, we have to win or we have to, you know, the lads enjoy winning and I can see them being happier when they win than when they lose. And, you know, the, uh, the argument would be, you can, you know, you can give all the research papers, but I've been on the field and I know the lads when they win and they're jumping around and that that's you know important to them. How do we kind of, so I suppose, uh, this is a question from a parent. So I'm guessing they're probably contemplating approaching the coach or asking why they're only getting that time. But then again, you kind of don't want to be that parent who's kind of annoying the coach or telling them how to do their job. And, you know, there's volunteers in large of these, you know, know, people are giving up their time. It can be a tricky one to manage. But do you think, is there an age range where equal game time should be a, a kind of, should it go longer than under 11s or should it be... Uh, right the way through or, or or when should we start to say okay well this is big senior hurling now or whatever you know use that expression well isn't it very difficult to put a number on when we should get serious like the, the greatest question I'm often asked is like when do we get serious when do we get serious and like keeping as many as possible for as long as possible in an environment where participation matters more than winning like that's sometimes difficult for people to to understand that that concept because it's again whose lens are you looking at sport through are you looking at lens are you, are you looking at sport through the lens of the coach or through the lens of the child and as we know and research tells us winning is not what motivation sport so if you follow the research and the guidelines we can implement that when children's sport becomes overly competitive like 
And that's when it becomes quite exclusive, Carmen. And like when it comes exclusive, it's less inclusive. When it comes less inclusive, there's the dropout. There's the dropout. So you have 20 cheers on the pitch, one ball, we'll try and dominate because the coach often thinks that winning is what motivates us. Like, of course, we're all naturally competitive, but we're not always naturally cooperative. You know, and we can develop that cooperation through our coaching, through our coaching game. So when to get serious, but I don't think it's in the early teams, Colin. I mean, mm. you look at the um, you look at the the transition from primary school to secondary school, and you'll know this more than I will. But that is an incredibly tough time for children to transition from primary school, where you've got one teacher, it's a different environment, you have your classroom, and you go to secondary school, and you're in. 10, 11 different classrooms, maybe. This is obviously post-COVID. I don't know what it's like now, but in normal times, we're in, you're going from class to class every 30 or 40 minutes. You're changing teacher every 30 or 40 minutes, and it's just different. And it's a very, very challenging time. And we look at then the attitude of when we leave primary school as footballers and go off to secondary school. And then sometimes we assume that a switch goes off in the child's head in that, okay, you're 13 now. This is the big league. We're going to train twice a week. We're going to do SNC on a Tuesday. We're going to um, have information about rest, recovery, and this is all really important now. And that's quite daunting because we know that at that age, children are leaving sport. And the reason they're leaving sport is because there's a change in coach, a change in coaching philosophy. It gets too competitive too soon. And I know, I know um, yourself and I had a chat before, and you, you coined the phrase, the five-a-side culture. I love it. Mm. The five-a-side culture. You know, what's wrong with a group of kids, 14, 15, 16, meeting and playing a game of five-a-side together? They're not training for a match. They're not ultra-competitive. But we're meeting their needs and their remaining physically active. Mm. And, and again, to, to, to come back on that question, Shane, and this is something that I've come across, and I, stri- I actually struggle to, to kind of answer it, which is this kind of philosophy that, you know, well, life is hard and sport should be a way of teaching us that, you know, that that you don't get to play all the time and you don't, you know, if you're not good enough, you don't make the team. And, you know, if you don't train hard enough, you don't earn your spot. And, you know, is there something in that philosophy that sport should be this kind of representation of life? Because mm-hmm. uh, I struggle with that a little bit. Yeah. yeah, well, how does a how do ten year olds rationalise that? Mm. I, I think it's very challenging for ten year olds to be that sub all the time. Mm. Be the one who doesn't get equal game time. They want to play, develop at a task, and be with their friends. You know, so for a ten year old to rationalise the bigger picture in life is quite challenging. And, and again, I think it's about the timing of it too. I mean, I, I, and of course, there is an argument that. You know, if you're 10 and you meet with adversity and you're on the subs bench, that maybe you'll try harder or maybe you'll, you know, improve or you'll kind of respond to the adversity. There's also that risk that you just give up in the, in the face of the adversity yeah. as well. You know, but I always remember you, you made a great point that, you know, sometimes we decide at under nine, you know, he's our free taker. And then he stays as the free taker from under nines till senior. You know what I mean? And there could be a great corner back in there who's a great free taker, but has never gotten a chance to take a free like how again at what point can you make a decision on I'm just thinking about I was just reading recently about Mo Salah you know the he's a flying form for Liverpool at the moment and he's scoring all random he's 29 or something but his early career 21 22 
he was nothing special. Do you know what I mean? From the point of view of, I think he was moving around a few clubs. He was at Chelsea and Roma and things like that. But to see this guy become the greatest player in the world, possibly at 29, would suggest mm. that, you know, we can still grow and develop in our 20s. So we're making a call on a 10-year-old. <laughs> exactly. Like, and that's my point, Duran, as many as possible for as long as possible. Like you mentioned, Marcella, that's one example. Like uh, at Ajax, Dennis Bergkamp wrote, wrote that it's up to 14, it's just playful skills at Ajax. You know, that's their philosophy. Like by age 14, scouts hadn't even noticed Rud van Nistelrooy, one of the greatest mm. goal scorers we ever. By age 14, he wasn't noticed. Now, I, re- I read recently, we've got four-year-olds getting signed professional contracts, you know. I mean, like Ma- Michael Jordan, actually, the greatest basketball player we ever said, he wasn't coached till he was 16. He believes in play early, learn late. You know, mm-hmm. that play, that aspect of, of self-discovery, that aspect of, of autonomy, of like critical thinking, be that in the green with your friends or be it in the basketball courts. You know, like more examples, like Jamie Vardy got his first pro contract at 23. You know, right. mm, mm, mm. Miroslav Klose, German, Germany's top scorer, made his debut at 24. 24. Mm, you know, mm. so, so this is probably why I'm trying to further like, understand this aspect of that. We try and I believe that we rush to elitism very young. Like we, we, we rush children into our academies very young. You know, like they haven't even started school yet and we're enrolling them in academies. And, you know, and they're in there from age three or four years of age. Sure, but the time they five, they're bored. You know, so what do they want then? Do you want matches? Then we have matches for six-year-olds. And we're, we're, we're thinking, gosh, six-year-olds in a match. I mean, the, the thoughts of putting a jersey on a six-year-old, getting to play a match, you know. Like, I think we're rushing a lot. Like, we, we don't hand the junior infant a book when they walk into school and say, read that, will you? Mm. Yeah, exactly, it's slower, exactly. It's a slower process. In our nurseries, we, we, we rush to, we, we're sometimes learning skills too soon, in my opinion, when the foundation of skill is movement. So the foundation of any skill is run, jump, hop, catch, bound, uh, throw. You know, these are all a movement. And if you look at any skill, like look at the high, the high jump, for example, the, 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 big, the big field in GA, and, and it's lovely to see a, a player getting up there, catching a high ball in rugby or in hurling or football, but that's just a skip. Like mm-hmm. the mechanics of that is just, it's just a skip. So mm-hmm. by teaching those fundamental movements early on, but give children a great foundation. But when we skip phases and go into skills too soon and matches too soon, we're rushing to elitism too soon. And that brings you to another question, Shane. Again, it's not something that's coming in, and I apologize if it's a bit off the wall, but it's hard to measure this. But what is the loss of the kind of cessation or the end of street football or playing on the road or playing on the green? Because, you know, that's where I, 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 myself and yourself are an alumni of of Thomas Davis GA Club. And the first team that I could ever have played with was the under 11s. There wasn't a team before that. Like, so we didn't have under sixes, under eights back in the the eighties, but I didn't go to that never having touched a football before. I played it in school. I played it with friends. I played on the road, you know, we say that our, our physical communities are much smaller now and every child activity is adult led. So we don't have this kind of, you know, you come out with a ball, the jumpers for goalposts approach to, to sport. Is, is there a noticeable loss in that or, or what's your view on that? Well, it's really hard to say yes or no, isn't it? Mm. We, 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 we don't know that answer for sure. And all we can do is reflect um, on what we do as children and then we look at our own children and how they play 
Like, I know, I remember playing games on the green and like, you know, we didn't need a ref. So we developed great communication skills. And there was a fairness there. Like that ball went over the jumper. That's the post. It's not a goal. Okay, move on. You know, that ball went, that's a throw in. Yeah, you're right. It's a throw in. We have this great, we had, like children are well able to manage their own game of football and children haven't changed. You know, mm. we haven't changed. Maybe, as you said, maybe that the adult side of things have changed where we need to, we feel we need to rest and, and overcoach technically. Like, I mean, did you ever try and coach Thinking of overcoaching technically, I think I think we do that too often. Trying to uh, coach a a five or six year old how to hand pass the ball in GA, for example. I mean, the wording is incredible. Like, hold the ball in the hand you don't write with. <laughs> right, that's the start of it. You know, so the child is thinking, right, I don't write. Okay, with the hand you do write with, draw back, make a small fist, and follow through with you. And the child, can you imagine the child's the thought process going on there? So at that age, I really believe in throwing and catching, throwing and bouncing, bouncing from right hand to left hand, rolling the ball around your back, throwing overhead, throwing chest, throwing underarm. They are sufficient skills to learn at that age before we, 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 we jump in. But it's also the same comment when we go to like, you know, the, the indoor play centers where our children, you know, they're all just, it's just so safe, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And you know, it's all, you know, there's no risk taking really there. It's all just so safe. Mm. And it is, it's the, the absence of negotiation. You know, I think that that's a brilliant example of that went over the post, it went in and, but you resolved it, whether you agreed with it or not, you know, you kind of got on with it or, you know, it's my throw, it's your throw. There was no adult to look to, to kind of, to give the, the executive decision on it. So I, I think children still have that ability to do that. Children mm, are fantastic mm. problem solvers if they're given opportunity. Like I, I coach now with my under my boys under eight football and hurling team, and you know I, I'm so quiet. I don't talk during the coaching sessions. I hand over autonomy to those guys and watch them learn and watch them, you know, make a mistake and watch them problem solve and watch them discover a way of doing a skill. Because self-discovery mm. is the greatest is the greatest aspect of learning. And when we played as children, we self-discovered. We 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 understood the boundaries, and, and children still know that. And when I coach now, I'm you know, I'm so quiet, and I love to see the children and the little boys problem solve themselves, and they are well able, well able to do it. And again, it's important to remind listeners that you are a primary school teacher, so childhood learning is your day job in that way and and again you, you come with that with some evidence the, the next question is an interesting one this is one that comes up quite a bit Shane it's a I coach a team but we have insufficient numbers to feel two teams uh, and two obviously too many to feel one team so we're left with an option of culling players and leaving these children clubless or having a rotating squad that each player plays every second week or making two small squads, which will be unlikely to last the season, I'm guessing because they're factoring in dropout or whatever. What is the best option when you have an, an odd number of players? So, for example, I'm guessing they might need, I don't know, 18 each if it's a GA team or 13 each if it's a soccer team. They sound like they have kind of about 20. So they have too many for one. Like, should you have 10 subs on the bench or should you, or what's the way around that? It's a very good question. This is something that, I've heard a lot of through my clinical work where children have been dropped from a club at under 11s and said, there's no room for you here or whatever the case might be. Or what, what, how do you, how do you tackle that one, Shane? Yeah. It doesn't so much of a go back to club philosophy again. Again, what are we about? What do we stand for? 
what do we want and what is success? Like, I was trying to look at the, the glass half full in these situations. And let's say it's, it's under 11 and, and it's, it's nine aside or 10 aside. And there's a 16, 17 children, for example. And the option would be, okay, it's nine aside. Let's keep 13 players. So we have four subs and we roll them on and roll them off if we can. And the other four or five are going to have to go. And that's, that's the option. But option two would be, okay, let's say we have, you know, 16, 18 players, as you said. Could we, could we try? Could we just try and have nine aside? Have two teams of nine aside, but no subs. You know, could we, this goes back to our, our communication within clubs. And I, I think there's a lot, lot, of, lot of times where it's quite set in stone. Under eight, you play seven aside and that's it. Under nine, eight aside, and that's it. So the value of communication amongst coaches, I think, is very important. Situations like that, the parent build it and they will come always brings to mind. Like, if we have a situation where we can split that squad in two, keep two teams for as long as possible, and we might start getting players back into it because, number one, there's a team for them, and number two, they're going to get equal game time. They're going to get sufficient game time. So suddenly, we split those two groups of 18 into nine and nine, we arrive at a game, you communicate with your team saying, look, I know it's nine aside, we've got, we've got nine players, Can we? sorry, I know it's ten aside, we've got nine players, would you mind playing nine aside? Nine times out of ten, the coach will go, no problem whatsoever. You know, how can we modify to accommodate? And I use that term so often when I bring my kids to my matches, to their kids' matches, how can we modify to accommodate? Not a great example recently, Common. 18 players, two teams arrived at a match, just I tweeted this a few weeks ago. Coaches had a little chat. Brilliant. They said, we've two pitches set up here. When we play nine aside, that's option one. Option two, seven aside with two subs. Option three, we'll set up a third pitch, play 6v6, and have three matches going. They decided on option three, Common. There was three pitches, 6v6. It was fantastic. What we saw was every single child playing. We saw, first of all, actually, great communication amongst mentors and coaches, like fantastic communication and cooperation. So that's a child-centered approach, not a coach-centered approach, but he wanted to put the children first. Children got put first. Let's set up an extra pitch really, really quickly. They got some poles. Next pitch was set up. It was 6v6. Each child got three matches for 15 minutes each. They all played against the opposition once. And the ball contact, the inclusion, the enjoyment, and, and that really warmed my heart as a coach to see that and there's so many good things happening. And, and as we know, children are coming. The less children playing on the pitch, the more ball contact you're going to have. One ball between 20, will they touch it very often? Probably not. One ball between 10 or 12, yeah, you'll get a fair few touches. And we see that around, we spoke last night about like developing technical elements in the basketball study, whereas when they went from 4v4 to 2v2, technical elements went up by like 60% or something. But that's just that's the, the, the physiological side of it. But the actual holistic side of it, these children are enjoying it when they're enjoying it their stay and, and i think sometimes and i 100 agree the coaching answer to that might be like if it's a league or if they're you know if it's you know saint mary's versus saint pat's and they have to you know play and, and i think sometimes the leagues can be understandably quite there i know in in soccer for example if you have more than two or three walkovers you get taken off the league if you don't have the right socks and shorts you get fined as a club you know the the idea of um you know the the list of players that you put in at the start and your list of scorers and there's a lot of structure around that that wouldn't allow for any level of flexibility is is that something we need to look at 
why would you not allow flexibility in those situations? Why would you not allow communication between mentors to give the children the best chance of playing that child-centered philosophy? Why, why, why wouldn't we do that? Why, I mean, I've never come across that. Uh, my background will be, will be hurling in football. And, and like when we go to matches, the first thing you do is you go over to your other, other coaches, have a chat. Um, how many of you, how many of you, in some cases, I'd say, well, we might pass one over to you and make a 77. How's that? And you say, great. And I've got good, positive experience of that in, in recent weeks. And I'm sure that happens across, across, across many, many sports. Um, you'd, you'd hope it does. But again, I understand it, maybe it's quite rigid. It's, it's, it's mm. quite, um, it's done that way for a reason. I don't know that reason. I don't know why it is. But I just know that by reducing the number of players on the pitch, we get a much better experience for children. Mm. And, and, and that's, and I think you're absolutely right, but here's another question probably that's a little bit off track, but in your opinion, Shane, how important is game time? I mean, we've said that maybe winning isn't the main motivator. Uh, you know, there's, it's meeting your friends, socializing, learning new skills. How important is game time in that algorithm of child's satisfaction when it comes to playing? Funny, I, not all children that we coach have ambitions to play at a high level. You know, Colin, it's funny. Uh, a lot of children that we coach, maybe they don't like the matches. And that's challenging for us to understand as coaches and parents. Like, maybe, maybe the best time of the week is the training. Maybe they love, maybe they love Tuesday and Thursday, six to seven. Maybe the match is not for them. Maybe it's too competitive. Maybe they don't like the environment. Maybe they could get a bit anxious nervous maybe they just don't like it so some children actually don't like the matches and don't have those aspirations of playing in Crow Park or playing in the Aviva or playing in Wembley or, 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 or the new camp wherever some children just enjoy going up training meet your friends have fun play and have the chats and I often think about the importance coming up the first 10 minutes of the training session. So your session is Tuesday evening, six o'clock. From six to five past six or ten past six, the value of allowing them to have a chat to each other, to socialize, to take a few penalties, to discuss the school day. The value of knowing the importance of coaching is also knowing when not to coach. And those ten, five or ten minutes at the start of each session are goals for some children. They're just goals. They don't want all this structure. Go to cone yellow, run to cone green, stop there, wait for my instructions again. That's not what motivates them. So that ten minutes where they have a bit of free play, a bit of a chat, maybe that's the best few minutes of their week. And again, I, I think you're right, but I, I wonder why do we not get that like uh, as a sense of like uh, and i you know I, when you're playing you're doing training you know there's there's an, always a bit of a match at the end and that they seem to really enjoy that part of it you know that they kind of but that I'm not, doesn't i'm not sure Coleman. i'm not sure do, do i'm not sure if they all enjoy that part of it either mm. and that's, that's all on the context of the match like if you have like like 12 children and um in a match in training you've got 66 um uh, sorry, let's say 24 children, sorry, and you've got a match of 12 v 12. Well, are, we better, are, are, are 24 children all enjoying that match if there's one ball between 12 v 12? I'm not mm -hmm. sure. Would, mm -hmm. would they enjoy it more for 6 v 6? Of course. If it was 4 v 4, if it was 3 v 3, of course, because they're included much more. 
Mm. Do they enjoy the fun games of training? Do they enjoy, why do children enjoy going to summer camp so often? Because it's just fun. It's just fun and enjoyment. And if you again, if say if you you did that for your training and you you had the 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 six v six or the four v four, do you think Shane that would take from their capacity to play the match nine v nine on Saturday if they weren't used to playing the larger numbers, or do you think it has any bearing whatsoever? Well, they're going to increase their ball contact. They're going to increase their enjoyment. They're going to in, in, increase their involvement. So with an increase of that, you would assume their skill set would get, would get better in many cases and they'd be prepared for the match on the weekend. But we look at countries who have led the way in, in small-sided games. and we, we discussed Belgium the last time, the way they, they ripped up their script. They, they looked at some research and they found children touched the ball twice in each half at, at 11 aside under... I don't know, 10 or 11, I think it was. So they ripped the script up and they restructured their whole coaching philosophy. And, you know, at the younger ages, it's 2v2 and it's 3v3 and it's 4v4. And we're seeing, like, the Welsh FA, they, they made some brilliant alterations to pitch sizes and goal sizes. So they're under 7s, they're 4v4, and under 8s, they're 5v5, I think. So we're looking at what other countries did really, really well. And, and the players are producing. We haven't got to look too far in the Belgian model in terms of the Brian uh, Lukaku, Hazard, etc., and their technical ability. So by reducing the numbers of players per team, we're increasing the amount of ball contact per player. And with that... And do you think as coaches, then we kind of overemphasize the importance of structure of, you know, three at the back, three halfbacks, two midfielders, three up front with a sweeper and, a, you know... A, uh, an extra ten and a half, or whatever you call it, you know, is do they do you think that's we're taking that a bit too far, or do you think we need to ease up on that a little mean, bit? Do you mean we're imposing adult coaching philosophies on children in sports? I think that's probably my question. Yeah, yeah, it's funny, you know, even things around warm up, you know, like I looking at a warm up there a while ago of an under eight or nine team, and it was like akin to a Premier League warm up, and I often wondered that maybe the children just want their a game of chasing, a game of chaotic chasing mm, at the warm mm, You know, mm. like what's, what's fun? I spoke last time about it. I remember during lockdown, I was doing a game of chasing for the, sorry, after lockdown, we had a, we were back playing matches and a game of chasing as part of a warm up for under 10s and the ref did a whistle to start the match. And to the girl said, oh, can we not, can we not play chasing? <laughs> you know, they were so happy playing that chasing, that lack of structure. And, you know, they were, how can I put this? They were, they were thriving in the chaos, thriving mm, 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 in the chaos. Mm. And, and that brings you on to another lovely question here. Is that this lady's written and said, my daughter loved the sports summer camp she went to. She was with her friends and they had great fun. It was a multi-sports camp. However, she started athletics in September and now she's refusing to go. She says it's not like the summer camps, that the coaches are, inverted commas, mean and want her to, they want her to be active, but don't know how far to push it. So how do you, keep a child this girl maybe sounds like she's about nine or ten maybe and she loved the summer camp bit but doesn't like when it's the athletics in the in the season so how do we keep her going yeah it's a, it's a the epitome of summer camps is fun play friendship games inclusion you know the summer camps are wonderful and up children go to play with their friends and have a great time and you would there's not much structure around the summer camp there's no pressure around matches there's a lot of times summer camps would involve games like you know duck duck 
goose, relay races, rounders, matches, crossbar challenge. And isn't there a message in that for us as coaches? That's what they like to do. Like, like what's wrong with having a crossbar challenge at training on the Tuesday evening? Nothing at all. Mm-hmm. What, 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 what's wrong with a game of tag? What's wrong with meeting their needs? What's wrong with making training fun? There's a study there that um, up to uh, almost 40% of boys and girls left sport because it wasn't fun anymore. You know, it wasn't fun anymore. Isn't that a heartbreaker? You know, because we can control the fun at the training. We can make it fun. We can include everyone. And that's, uh, that's well within our control to... Uh, to meet those needs around fun. But individual sports common will be different and you would have experience in that too around individual athletes and um their the coaching and the training I'm sure is quite different in in swimming or in in, in athletics. Mm. And again there's nowhere to hide I suppose in your performance and uh, you know uh, oftentimes I've spoken to a lot of kids play tennis and they just go you know when, when you have a bad game you can't turn to someone else and say well you know it was your kick outs or you know, you were weak in that way. And uh, and so I think that it's a high risk, high gain. You know, there's a great adulation when you do well because it's your own success. Um, but again, nowhere to hide when you have a bad day. And, and it's, I think it's important to understand that children will have bad days at sport. You know, uh, no even elite professional sports player plays their best game every time, you know. And, uh, you know, we see these... Uh, aberrations of scorelines and you're going to go where did that happen from these guys are paid millions to do that that you know an under 14s team might go out and play below their abilities and that's that's probably to be expected is it not you know yeah yeah they're allowed not play well and you know (laughs) they're only their children and they've got a a lot going on in those teenagers too there's many many changes happening for teenagers too there's like emotional changes biological changes they're they're changing schools. They're meeting a new group of friends, and 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 there's lots going on. But I think as coaches, you know that that switch doesn't go off in the child's mind from 12 or 13. Okay, I need to get serious now. Sport needs to get serious, and us coaches have to impose that seriousness on the children. I don't think we need to do that. I think if we are if we started off with a nine with 20 children, we've got 20 children on the and we've got 20 12 to 14. We're doing a very good job at retaining those children. Because, you know, our coaching of 20 children one evening a week is, will not make the, you know, the really, really top-class inter-county player. That's about themselves. They decide themselves they want to pursue that. Maybe in their late teenage years or mid-teenage years, they want to pursue their, their skill sets. They want to improve, want to do some SSC themselves. That really is intrinsic motivation. And, and you know, success has many forms, right? Like, you know, if we coach children and one place for the county, well, well done. That's success. Congratulations. But success has many forms. What about the children who could be only one wrong turn in, 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 from taking a bad turn in life? Mm. And, we, and we keep them on track. You know, that's also success. What about the child who maybe was not really applying themselves in school when they were 13 or 14 and you meet them 10 years later and they might run their own business, they might have gone back to college to get to pursue a degree. That's all the success. Success has many, many branches when we look at the bigger picture in sport and, and give sport a real sense of perspective. Mm. And again, it's, it's, it's that kind of paradox of do we that sometimes we take the sport part too seriously, but we take the influence part too lightly, you know, in terms of our potential as coaches to 
to be a good enough adult for a child, to be someone who gets them, who listens to them, who who hears them. And I, you always say this, you know, this expression of you're know, saying hello and knowing their name and, you know, acknowledging them and how simple that can be. But in terms of what that means to them, you know, that that bit of personal uh, acknowledgement or recognition of each other um, has That's huge benefits, you know, uh, and, and I think we we might have overemphasized our role in creating a, an elite athlete, but underestimate our role in creating a good human being, you know, from that yeah. point of view. Um, like great, great people make great coaches, right? Yeah. You know, I always say that great people mm. make great coaches. You don't have to play it at a high level to be a great coach. You don't have mm. to play it at any level to be a great coach. It's funny. Empowering is coaching, you know, mm. you know, I, I, you know, certain things that require zero coaching experience or zero playing experience. Like welcoming with a smile, knowing their name, mm-hmm. saying hi to parents, positive talk, giving confidence, you know, giving equal game time, saying well done. These are all mm-hmm. things, you know, are good people and make good coaches, you know. And just because you played at a higher level doesn't mean you're going to be a brilliant coach. Now you could, of course, you could be a brilliant coach, but I've seen some brilliant coaches that never played. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's important for us to remember. Um, the next question, Shane, is an interesting one because this has come up for me personally within my own professional life a couple of times. My son is doing his leaving cert. He plays hurling and soccer at a high level. And he's very good at both. I've told him he must give up one of these as he will need time to prepare for his exams. He doesn't want to disappoint either of his coaches and choose, but he can't do both. Any ideas? Now, an extension of this question is I've seen four people in who attend me in the last month who are leaving certain junior cert students who have given up sport for that reason. Um, and it's a real issue for me because I think those exam years are probably where they need the activity and the sport and the distraction more than any other time in their lives. But when it comes down to that level of having to choose, um, and my guess is, you know, probably twice a week training and a match at the weekends is a big chunk of your time when you're trying to do a leaving session. If you're doing it for two sports, that could be a lot as well. Um, but for this parent, obviously this mum is, is concerned about him being able to, to manage both. And, and, and he's concerned about telling the coach, which coach he's going to drop. Um, how do we help this family here? Yeah. Given give the, 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 the child has been given an ultimatum, so to speak. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He has to pick one. That's, yeah. That's, that's, very, that's very challenging for the, the child as well to, uh, to process that information, isn't it? To be told mm. you go and you pick one. Um, I, I, I wonder, Coleman, I wonder, you know, I, when the leaving set is on the immense pressure, some children are under to perform and relating that back to sport, we know children are leaving sport when it becomes too competitive and there's pressure to perform and accentuating this pressure around the exams with with ultimatums around you must give up sport must be really hard for the for the the leading test student the student because they are only 70 he's only 17 he or she is only 17 to rationalize all of this and the healthy aspect i mean how much better do we feel when we go for a run and we come back how much better do we feel when we exercise you know, we obviously we get a chemical reaction, we get endorphins released and we feel better. We just feel better. And maybe allowing the child to continue playing sport will help him feel better and give a sense of perspective around the whole leaving set too. I wonder, could 
the parent chat to both coaches. Could he alternate? Could he train with one team this Wednesday and the following team the following Wednesday? The bigger picture for the child could be they could, he could have friends in both teams. I mm. played the rugby team and a hurling team. He could have great friends in both. And the loss of friendship could be making the, uh, the team quite anxious too. Mm. And I wonder, could it be a balance, a balance there where, yeah, let's chat to the coaches. I don't know too many coaches that will be unwilling to compromise in that situation with the Leaving Cert being such a big time in the child's life. So a little bit of compromise from both coaches, maybe have a foot in each camp. And it's only going to go on for maybe May and June, mm. you know, and then back to July. And I think that's a brilliant suggestion. And I think it, it, you would hope that someone would have the flexibility to see the bigger picture. I suppose the, 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 the young people I've been speaking to, uh, it have, have one of them had approached a coach and said, you know, I, 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 could I just train once a week instead of twice because I've after school study and I'm there till nine or eight or whatever. Um, and it's, it's a young lad who has aspirations to do well, leaving cert wise and would like, he probably would need that level of time. And he was told by the coach, you know, you're either you're in or you're out and it would affect the team morale if I let you do one training a week and the rest of them all would, would do it. So, um, so his ultimatum was it's full, it's all in or all out. And I think that was one of the things that, that drove me, Shane, to kind of think about, again, getting back to that five-a-side culture idea. And, you know, I, was, I really have the bit between my teeth to try and create this situation, maybe just for exam years, that there could be a situation where young people could go and play five-a-side on a Thursday night for an hour and there's no commitment to do that. Um, and when I suggested it, lots of people have been very optimistic and said that's a good idea. The 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 the, the naysaying view of it or the worry about it is that um, again, and it was something that came up in a conversation I had in an interview recently, where the lack of a club or a belonging to a club is is a problem. That you know, if you're just going and turning up for a five aside with kind of random people, that you don't have that, and that that's a massive part of. The identity of sport is, you know, playing for Davises or Bridget's or Jude's or whoever it is. And that 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 if you lose that, you lose the essence of what it is to play sport. But my view is that, and it gets back to your point, activity and movement are central to our mental health. And whether they exist within a, a, a club or a, a kind of sense of belonging or not is, is one thing or another. But surely movement and activity is better than nothing in that sense. But would you have a thought on that, Shane, or, or what, what do you think about that idea? Well, we're definitely seeing a huge increase in recreational sports popping up, popping up everywhere as recreational hurling, recreational football. And it's very, very interesting because what it's doing, it's meeting people's needs. Like, as I said earlier on, not everyone plays sport because they have these aspirations to go on and play at the top. Like, why do you still play tag rugby going? Because you just enjoy it. Mm. You enjoy getting out there. You enjoy playing. You enjoy that little bit of fun with your friends, knowing all well, knowing too well that you're not going to play in the Aviva for Ireland, I presume. No, no. I, I, I've resigned myself to that. But what I would say to that is, I enjoy the competition of it. I enjoy the hour yeah. of giving everything I can not to lose that match. Do you know what I mean? But... Once the whistle is yeah. gone and, and nine o'clock is and the astrolites are being turned off, there's nothing. I never give it a second thought after that. But 
it's not that it's this sort of like it, it does satisfy a competitive need in me. Do you know what I mean? And I, I, I mean, I've, it's a lifesaver for me because for that hour, I'm not thinking about anything other than that game. And it's, you know, yeah, for my I job and, and, and the I weight of the stuff that you're dealing with, you know, in terms of the, the heaviness of my work, I, I, an hour where I don't get to think about that or I don't have to worry about that is so important to me. Do you know what I mean? And my, yeah. my tag rugby on a Monday night is sacrosanct. And like nothing is getting in the way of that. You know, it is, it is that level of priority. But as, as in a, a commitment or as in a pressure, I don't feel any pressure other than try not to lose this for an hour. But at one minute past nine, we're chatting in the car park and having a joke about how some of the lads' patio is coming along or whatever. The, you know. So it's, it's not, uh, it doesn't have any long-term impact. But I, the benefit of movement and activity for me, I'd miss it if I, do, if I don't get there, I would know that I wasn't there. Do you know what I mean? Um, and I know that sounds yeah. odd, but I really missed yeah. it. Over oh. COVID, I missed it hugely, you know? Yeah, but that doesn't that go back to our intrinsic motivation? Like, you're doing it for you. I think that if I've said to my friends, I do it for me. You know, there's no, you know, that intrinsic motivation, I'm going to do my best here for this hour because it's good for me and I like it. And the winning is not motivating us. The winning that tag rugby is not motivating you. How it makes you feel is what motivates you. What it does for your well-being is what motivates you when you play, you meet your friends after, you have a chat and you go home. So it's good for you. Likewise, when I go off with my friends and play five-a-sider, I go jogging with a group of three or four of us or we might, we might play a, you know, a bit of tag rugby too. It's good for me. I like that. I want, no one's telling me to be there. I, I own it. Like you own going to tag rugby it's yours so you're going to do your best for you and applying that philosophy to, to children's sports the exact same they're not motivated by winning there is no research to tell us that they're motivated to win every single cup every single league that's out there they're motivated to beat every single team they play against they really aren't it's a collection of individuals who are intrinsically motivated to do the best for themselves and walking off that pitch winning or losing children can rationalise that really really well they're back on their bike cycling with their friends. They're, they're on the skateboards, the scooters very soon afterwards. So that tells us again, similar rationale. And that often brings up the question for me whether competitiveness is a state of mind as opposed to necessarily anything else. I, I, I mean, the, the, one of the next questions here is, uh, you know, I have a mixed ability team. How do I bring on my good players who are clearly talented and driven and include the less skilled, less competitive players. And then again, that's I know this question you've been asked a hundred million times. How do you manage both? But I'm guessing I was just somebody asked me to, to put a, a thing in a column this week about someone I admired. And I put down Leona Maguire, you know, the golfer. Um, and, and it wasn't necessarily because of her work rate or her drive, which must have been phenomenal. But what I admire about her is her ability to be herself, you know, that she does, she's still a girl from Cavan, even though she's playing the Solheim Cup and she hasn't lost her accent and she you know, hasn't kind of turned into someone who she's not. And I really admire that part of it. But for our elite people, like we want the Kelly Harringtons, we want the Katie Taylors, we want the Paul O'Connells and the, we need these people as well. How do we nurture them at the same time as nurturing the kid who might 
enjoyed the social side and the fun side of it? Or is there a necessary point? And again, it's probably this question, at what time do you get serious? But at what time do you separate them or do you separate them? Because again, there was another question here about a child who plays and it's his teammates shout at him when he misses a ball or when he makes a mistake. And the mum is saying it really impacts on his self-esteem because his team obviously, you know, think he's rubbish or whatever the case may be. So when you have that mixed ability within that team, how do we nurture the potential in the elite athlete or the talented athlete or the competitive athlete and keep that kind of uh, fair weather footballer involved? Well, like, I suppose, like, there's a lot in that. Like, our role as coaches, like, we're facilitators, right? We just facilitate. And as I said earlier, like, success has so many branches. And in order to become a top-class golfer or Olympic boxer, that comes from nobody else but that individual. They, like, they are the ones out there pounding the pavement, so to speak. They're the ones out there hitting shot after shot, hitting these tentative little chips onto a, onto a, onto a green putting a hundred balls, ball after ball after ball. No one's doing that for them. They've made a choice to do that intrinsically. They want to do it for them. They own it. So, I mean, the other side of it is bringing on our other athletes too. And like, that also goes back to the aspect of play, equal game time, and success having many, many branches. So like, you know, you, you said about being yourself, like the great quote there, like be yourself because everyone else is taken, mm, mm, you know, mm. and, and, it, and, it, and it's so true. And some children aren't that motivated to play at the top, but some children really, really are. And a small amount will get to the top. You know that book, um, Michael Calvin, No Hunger in Paradise? Um, no, tell me about that. It's a, it's, it's a book about um, grass football and out of um, 180 boys out of 1.5 million will play in the Premier League. There's 1.5 million boys playing grassroots football in England and out of that 1.5 million, 180 will play in the Premier League and that's 0.012%. There's your odds. Very, very minute, very minute. So if we only value success via medals, trophies and winning, we're setting children up for failure. Mm-hmm. Because judging by those statistics, Carmen, it's a very, very, very small amount of people that go on to the very top. Must we try and facilitate them? Absolutely. It, there's so much joy in working with high-end athletes. I was very fortunate myself to work with high-end athletes with my work as a, as a, as a sports scientist. It's wonderful. And there's so much joy in that too. But like, there's no magic wand from a coach or a sports scientist or any qualification. It really must come from that player themselves mm, mm. and again it's it's what's driven within you rather than imposed on you and again i think it would do us all a great deal of good to realize that our hour and a half on a tuesday night doesn't create the elite athlete and i think you know sometimes we believe that that might be our responsibility to guide them through that they will they will find their way to that another fascinating piece uh, i think is research we've talked about before we said that kind of one percent of your average i think it might have been a ga team will make the elite level um 99 won't um yeah. but a, a research looking into parents found that 24 percent of parents believe their child was going to make the elite level uh, as opposed to the 1%. So we have 23% of parents utterly disappointed. And it would be remiss of us not to talk about, 
I suppose the involvement of parents in sport and there's been some kind of news stories recently about parents getting very uh, head up and upset about the, the results or, or the goings on within underage games across all sports and there's no kind of heroes and villains in this I think it occurs in every one of them how do we manage that we've tried be sound be silent we've tried silent sidelines we're trying to kind of encourage uh, a culture of and, and I don't remember this Shane as much when I was playing, I don't remember the parent encroaching on the field when I was playing under 11s or under 12s in the 80s. I don't actually remember my parents having that much of a vested interest in my sporting life in terms of, I think if my dad probably went to one or two games. I don't know whether my mum ever watched me play. If they would be hard pushed to tell you what age group I played under, and you know, and I was remembered being my second year in nursing and my father coming into the room and said, are you still schooling? You know what I mean? <laughs> that left school two years ago. But the, it's a, so there is a case of parents being more invested in our children's lives, which is, you know, perhaps I'm, I've no doubt a variable in the problems that we see in terms of parental behavior around children's sport. But a huge issue or that coaches will come to you and say is the parents are, 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 kind of pressuring me to do this, to divide, to, you know, to give their child the best chance of success or to be the elitist or, or may indeed be the driving force behind some of the pressures and difficulties that we've just talked about, that competitiveness and everything else. How are we going to manage this dynamic that seems to be emerging in, and it's really sad to see, I have to say, it's, there's nothing kind of disappoints me more than seeing these videos doing the rounds of these reports and stories of these things. Shane, have you any clue as to how we can manage this for clubs, parents, coaches, referees? And I think that's a real worry. I think referees are going to be kind of, you know, the, the attraction of doing that job, if it gets, it's kind of almost become a job hazard of your own safety at the moment in certain things. Um, and uh, how do we keep the game alive and not allow this to contaminate it? Yeah, over competitiveness from the parents' perspective, looking at sport through their own lens and not through the lens of the child. You know, it's 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 what what we see sometimes in the sideline and the overzealous parents. And you know, it's I don't know. I've not, there's no answer. There's no solution to it. But what we will say is that the the children represent a club. They've got a jersey on. They represent the club. The parents then going to watch the children who are also representing that club. So, again, to have and be really true to your values, your morals, and your expectations as a club, I really believe it has to come from the very top, from the club. Um, and then, just to remind, I mean, we are bombarded with social media. It's not hard to get a message out there on mm. a club's Twitter page, Facebook page, just to remind and reinforce. And it really goes back to the education piece, Cormoran, around parents, around the children are here for play, they're only amateurs, they're only children, they're with their friends, the referee will make mistakes, accept the solution, see the bigger picture, set a good example, and for God's sake, have a sense of perspective. And I think that's a really important word, to have a sense of perspective around the, an under 10, under nine match. I mean, the children will go to school the following day. The parents will go to work the following day. Life will go on. We'll get to the next match. We'll go training. This is not the end of the world, a decision the referee makes in you know, a nine or under 10 game. 
like the sense of perspective around children's sport is 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 needed as 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 we hear all these stories every weekend about encroaching parents and referees being being given dreadful dreadful sticks in the sideline and like referees they're going to make mistakes sure of course they're going to make mistakes should we all make mistakes it's mm. only normal our level of tolerance as a society at children's matches maybe that's what we need to look at and that I think comes from clubs to reinforce and continuously reinform parents of what the club is all about and what expectations are expected and I am a huge believer in silent sidelines I'm a massive believer in the coaches doing the talking of course the coaches have to do some talking if there's two coaches for an under 10 team you'll have to say okay John you you move forward now and uh, and and let Mark come into the back line there mm. you know uh, David you go midfield and you let Jordan go and go of course coach okay well done great job well done of course coaches need to talk but can you imagine a child with the ball at their feet and all these different instructions Pass it, run, go left, go right, go forward, go back, look behind you, look in front of you. This child has the ball at the feet. They're not hearing anything. They're just hearing noise. And that's, again, prepare to repeat myself, going back to coaching and matches and looking at the lens of the child to make that experience the best experience. They don't need all this misinformation, all people shouting at them, different instructions and it just it, it's actually pointless coming you know mm. it's actually mm. pointless it's you just remind me of a conversation i had with, with, with my father when he my father would was a, is maintains a fairly handy golfer in his 80s but he was a great golfer during his time and he would always be kind of giving you a lesson on how to do the swing and i can remember saying to him once can you tell me what to do before i stand up to the ball Right. Don't tell me while I'm trying to do the swing because, you know, you'd be lining up and he'd say, remember your head down now, move those shoulders, move that hip to the side, tuck that elbow in. And you're going to go, I've forgotten, like, just tell me before I get up on the tee box. I I really value your opinion and I want to know it, but not when I'm trying to do it. Do you know what I mean? And when you see a kid with a ball and six people are shouting at him to pass it, flick it, keep it, go long, go short. You know, you can imagine what that must be like in terms of just purely overstimulus, in terms of trying to do it. And as an adult, you would struggle to do it. Um, how, can, how can a child process that information? Mm, how can mm, a child mm. process any information in that split second of playing the game? I mean, how can an adult probably go off the tag rugby if you're running with the ball, you hear all these different instructions, I mean, you, you don't know where to go. You know, when we're an adult, you know, yeah. how, how can a child process all this information on the sideline? And it goes back to our club being really strong in their philosophy to say, Thanks for bringing your children up. It's great. We want, but just for matches, they have the two coaches. We'd really appreciate if you just watch the game. Mm. And again, uh, and you know, unfortunately, time has made a fool of us, Shane. But the issue here, what I'm hearing you say time and time again throughout the conversation today, is the adults in the room are really important in this in terms of setting the temperature and the tone and the culture of what it is that the children will thrive in and develop in. And it is. It is, and it, I, I want to say this openly, and I've kind of got a little bit of stick on uh, on Twitter and things like that, where people have said, you know, you think all coaches are egomaniacs and they're all bad. I don't. I think there's some fantastic coaches out there who do this job brilliantly well, and I know from your chats with you, Shane, that you know that too. And we are we're fans of of good coaching, um, but there are things that we to bring attention to and things that I again say that thing about shouting the directions at the child on the thing 
I know I probably would do that sometimes myself. And I have to catch myself and say, shush, you know, <laughs> in terms of, you know, some of it's not necessarily intent. Maybe it's not about, you know, nobody gets into coaching roles to destroy a child's self-esteem or to make things traumatic for them. Um, they're probably done with the best of intentions, but there are ways in which we can make children's sport better uh, and improve it. And I think conversation with you, Shane, especially always comes back to child focused philosophy. You know, who are we here for? You know, and again, kind of parking our own agendas and listening to, and it's really brilliant is the voice of the child always leads your philosophy on what to do next. You know, whether it's not about structures and systems, it's not about medals and accolades. It's not even about player development in that way. It's about child development, really, isn't it? It's about them. And uh, I just, I, I, every time, and we've talked so many times, I come away with something different and something new and something, um, another insight. And it's almost an, an epiphany each time. Um, do you have any closing remarks, Shane, for anybody who's listening out there who is involved? And look, we, we know loads of people are involved in children's sport, whether as a parent, a parent coach, a coach, a club member, uh, the lad who runs the car park, the chairman of the club, the treasurer. What what is what can we do going forward to to what, what would you like to see in the next decade in terms of our the way in which our sports structures are set up and designed. Yeah, there's, there's a great quote uh, from a lady called Helen Hayes, and it says, childhood is a short season. Yes, it is. Mm. Yeah. It's a very short season, and those years fly by, and leaving children with a really positive experience of sport as a child, you're giving them a great gift in life, you're giving them a gift of, of physical activity as they go on in later life and as they maybe give up sport in a club, they might pursue other sports than triathlon, jogging, going to the gym, remaining physically active, you know, and, and exercise is a gift that we can pass on and a love for exercise is a gift that we can pass on, but we'll only pass it on in a child-centered environment where they're happy and they're having fun and they feel part of it. Mm. 100%. Well, what better way to, to end the episode? Uh, Shane Smith, it has been a pleasure and uh, I will uh, look forward to having a chat with you again, as always. Lots to learn in that and I hope everyone who's listening has learned a lot from it. If you have any questions for Shane and I, you can get in touch with the podcast on Asking for a parent at gmail.com. You can get us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, uh, the usual handles there. Uh, but for now, Shane Smith, thank you ever so much for your time, your honesty, and your insights. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you much, Common. What's the And for everyone out there, take care, stay safe, and bye for now. That was the wonderful Shane Smith there. And I hope in that long conversation we had, there were such really gems of wisdom that. Uh, Shane often talks about and it's great to get his thoughts on uh, the competitive nature of sport, the best way to approach grading, how to keep children involved and how participation is so important. And we all know 
that activity and movement are so important for our mental health and our well-being and we really need to keep children moving and as engaged and participating as long as possible. So I really want to thank Shane for his contribution today uh, and his wisdom and insights as always. We also have released a bonus episode where I speak to Kieran McFadden who has um, created an initiative around trying to get over the competitive nature of children's sport and that's a really good listen so that will be a separate episode that will be released later this week so I hope you can listen in and enjoy that one too but Shane Smith thank you very much for your time today and for all of you out there thanks a million for listening we'll be back again in December for our Christmas episode but until then take care Stay safe and bye for now.